Welcome to this very special episode of the Women Who Roar podcast. I wanted to start by talking about why I decided to do a solo cast episode, because it's not because I think my story is so special or shocking or so unique. But as I interviewed women for this podcast, I realized that there are these common themes of abuse you see in pretty much every toxic relationship story. And I find that tying those themes back to my own story really helps highlight them as patterns that other women can recognize. The other reason I wanted to record a solo cast is because at the end of last year, I heard this great list of behaviors considered emotional abuse. I actually heard them on the Something Was Wrong podcast, which featured Sarah Lewis Gonzalez in season one. She was a guest on a previous episode of this show, and it featured her story in detail. In the context this list of behaviors was given in, it was that the NIH and U.S. National Library of Medicine recognize emotional abuse as precursors of physical abuse. So we need to recognize these behaviors because they can escalate to physical abuse. That really struck a chord with me because I felt like I had to pick my mouth up off the ground when I heard the list. There were so many of the behaviors I had been subjected to in my own toxic relationship. And I think it shocked me because I knew my relationship was toxic and unhealthy, but I didn't think much of it beyond that. It wasn't really a shocking relationship. But when I heard this list, I think it sunk in for me that I would probably have been physically abused if I had stayed in that relationship. In fact, I remember when I first went to my therapist after the breakup and I told her about some of the behaviors that had been difficult to deal with, she said that they were red flags for physical abuse, but I never felt in danger in my last relationship, so it didn't really stick. But the truth about toxic relationships is we never think that they are that bad when we are in them. So now that I'm out of one, I'm going to look back and go through the list of emotionally abusive behaviors and tell you how I experienced each one of my past relationship to help you spot behaviors that could be toxic in your current relationship or identify with the new things in a relationship that you have come out of because both of these things can help you reach a deeper level of healing, a level that maybe you didn't even know you needed. If you've read my book, Losing You, Finding Me, you might be familiar with some of these stories and I've also mentioned some of them in other podcast episodes. So I'll try not to share too much information that I've mentioned before but I will be adding never-before-shared details, and it will feel a little more like a story than my book does, so there are some juicy morsels in here for everyone. So without further ado, let's get into it. All right, so let's go through our list of emotionally abusive behaviors. The first one that I want to cover is isolation. With that, one thing that it's very important to understand with all of these behaviors is that the end goal is control. So whether you're dating a narcissist or someone who is just unhealthy enough to display a lot of these behaviors, the motivation behind them is that they want to control or possess you. And I want to be fair in how I talk about these things because I don't think someone who is emotionally abusive or toxic always recognizes that they want that. Sometimes they do. I think in my personal experience with a toxic relationship, my partner, I do think that he had a desire to control me, but I don't think he recognized that. I think he just had unhealthy ways of loving and behaviors that made him feel in control, made him feel like our relationship was safe and secure. So I don't want to demonize somebody who has been 
may be a perpetrator of some of these behaviors and toxic relationships, but I do want to recognize them. This is all about our healing and not about pointing fingers. So isolation is a key piece of how somebody who's emotionally abusive can gain control or possession over you. The thing is, isolation and actually really all of these emotionally abusive behaviors usually start in a very subtle way. In my past relationship, I feel like isolation wasn't a huge problem for maybe the first five to six years of our relationship. I will say during that time, there was what seemed like a low-grade jealousy of my family. So when I met Kyle, I was 18. I was living with my family at the time. And then when I was in school, I'd obviously go home to visit my parents on breaks. Because Kyle and I were long distance, a lot of our meeting would happen at one of our family's homes. And Kyle really didn't like that. He wanted us to date. He called it like adults. So there was kind of this attitude that he didn't like how close I was with my family or how much time we spent with them. But that was something that didn't necessarily seem like a yellow flag because there was some validity to what he was saying. And I did feel like his frustration was understandable. So when things got really bad as far as isolation goes was the last year of my relationship with Kyle when we had made the decision to get married. We weren't engaged. We actually never got engaged. But we were looking at rings and we had picked a date and we were planning where we would live and how we wanted to decorate our place. And so it was just this new chapter of our relationship that had only been an idea before. On a side note, I do find this really interesting. I mentioned this a little bit in Sarah Gonzalez's episode that I have noticed that as an unofficial pattern of a lot of toxic relationships, it seems that whenever the relationship hits a new milestone, whether that be moving in together or getting engaged or getting married or having a baby or what have you, the abusive behaviors seem to ramp up each time. And my personal theory behind that is that with each of those milestones, the toxic person feels a little more secure in their ownership or their possession of you. So there just isn't really a need for them to hide those pieces of themselves anymore. But anyway, in my relationship, while Kyle and I were moving toward a marriage, there was kind of as there always was in our relationship, all these relational issues popping up. And it was very important to me to solve these because I saw them as obstacles to the future with Kyle and I wanted to marry him. So it seemed to me like this last stretch of things we had to work through before we could ride off into the sunset on our happily ever after. With these relationship problems, there was a lot of gaslighting going on, and I'll save the details of that for later in this episode, but there was a lot of questioning of me by him as to whether my concerns were irrational or not normal. A lot of times, you know, if I would express a concern, it was really tossed back to me as just me. Looking back, you know, I think, okay, well, who cares if they were something that bothered just me? If I'm the woman you're going to marry, I'm the most important opinion on our issues. But at the time, I did want to get perspective to figure out, is he right? And I do want to mention, you know, I think it's always important to get input and to get outside perspective and accountability and relationship. I simply think that he should have valued my opinion higher than he did because he wanted to marry me. But that doesn't mean in a healthy relationship, seeking outside opinions is healthy. 
So anyway, I wanted to reach out to a couple of people who had been mentors to me in college first. They were super wonderful people. They really loved helping young adults. And they had also overcome some things in their own marriage and were happily married. And they, they really, at the end of the day, just meant so much to me. So when some of these issues would pop up, I would reach out to them and Kyle would say things like, I don't want you talking to them about our relationship. So I would ask my married girlfriends for advice, and then he didn't want me talking to them either. So then I decided I would pay for us to go to a counselor together, just get a more professional perspective, and I actually paid for us to go to a counselor together twice. I thought that would be a great way to have a neutral mediator. I did pick the counselor, and that was simply because Kyle just wasn't interested and seeking help at all for us to grow. So if that was something I wanted, the onus was on me to pick the counselor. So during both of our appointments, Kyle gaslit me the entire time. And even though the counselor fell for it, afterward, Kyle told me, I don't want you to talk to that counselor anymore. And I don't want you talking to any of your friends or family about our relationship. He also started getting weird about the time I would spend with my family. So I remember we were spending one Easter together. It was the year that we were supposed to be getting married and it was actually our first holiday other than like Father's Day, I think, together that we had spent together in seven years. And apparently Easter was a really big celebration for his family. They lived in Southern California and my family was going to come down to Southern California and have their Easter celebration down there as well because both my brother and I lived in Southern California at the time. So the plan was to spend half of the weekend with each family. And we were in full-blown wedding planning mode at that point. So it seemed like a very natural, comfortable, and appropriate plan. I first drove up to his parents and we met there. I went to his family's big Easter dinner and we had a really nice time. And then we were supposed to go meet my family at their hotel the night before Easter Sunday after we went to his family's Easter celebration. And we didn't because he didn't want to. However, I was so impressionable to him. I was influenced to think that driving to meet my family would be too tiring for me. Of course, these were things that he kind of suggested to me. And he did it in this way that seemed really compassionate and like, I'm taking care of you. But looking back, I realized, you know, what I really wanted was to go to my family's Easter celebration. My mom was understandably upset that we weren't coming when we said we were because she had had in her heart this vision of spending her holiday with all her kids in one place and we had actually already spent longer with Kyle's family than had been on the original schedule for mine and so he additionally kind of twisted my mom being upset into the story that my mom was placing all this pressure on me and he came in like this big hero to say no for me when in actuality, I wanted to go meet my family, but I didn't want to go alone. And he refused to come with me and be that support that I needed. I think this is really interesting as a side note, not so much. This is part of what I want to describe about isolation, but this interjection here is more that I think it's really interesting that all of this kind of came about because I didn't feel strong enough to say what I wanted. You know, I I didn't feel strong enough to say, I want to go see them. And if I hadn't wanted to go see them, there was the understanding that I wasn't strong enough to say that either to my family. 
And so it really created this void for somebody with some narcissistic tendencies to come in and be my voice for me. And I just wanted to point that out because what I, what I really needed and I think what I wanted at a core desire place was to be supported in doing what I wanted to do. But this is one area in which I've grown healthier and that has shifted me or a way that I've grown healthier in a way that is shifting me toward attracting healthier. I don't have a problem saying what I want now and I don't have a problem doing what I want. And if you want to be with me, you can come along for the ride. Now, I understand that when you're in a committed relationship, obviously, there's times when you are being sensitive to what the other person wants. It's not like my terms all the time. But the fact that I didn't have, I guess, the strength to use my voice at that time was one of the ways in which my own unhealthiness opened the door for these toxic behaviors to flourish in our relationship. So building on that story, Kyle was especially weird with my relationship with my mom. Again, for the majority of the first few years of our relationship, he got along with my mom pretty well. And I would say that my mom has been, she has a best friend-like role in my life, which is why I think he got weird with her because emotionally abusive people tend to hate your intimate contacts or your best friends because they see them as a threat. So my mom and I both have health issues. Mine have been a little bit more severe, but the autoimmune component of my health issues comes from my mom and she has been through her own significant battle with related complications and has had some really serious moments of her own health struggle. So she really understands in a way that you can what it is like to live with chronic health issues and that is such a support for me. Near the end of our relationship, Kyle decided that he basically just didn't want my health issues to exist, therefore they didn't exist which I will talk about more when we get to gaslighting. And obviously the way that I'm telling this is dramatizing my interpretation of it a little bit. He didn't come out, you know, right away and say, that's not a direct quote from him. Um, but as part of that attitude he adopted, he told me that my mom was emotionally and psychologically manipulating me to make her, to make me sicker than I actually am and that her goal in doing that was to keep me engaged with her. And obviously, this is so crazy. You sometimes just have to wonder where abusers or just maybe somebody who's not showing up healthy in relationship come up with this stuff. And I personally think they probably just accuse other people of what they themselves would do. But if you look at this through the lens of isolation, this is a pretty common isolation strategy. So invalidate your intimate relationships or convince you there are problems that there aren't so that you start to detach from those relationships. And for um, someone who is exhibiting emotionally abusive behavior, this isolation serves a couple of purposes. So it makes you more dependent on them as your primary relationship because they continue undermining your other relationships until you really don't have any left. But it also cuts you off from hearing the voice of reason in your life. So the more you cut off relationships, the less you hear people telling you that your abuser's behavior isn't healthy or normal. I'm using the term abusers sometimes in here because it's easier than saying someone who exhibits emotionally abusive tendencies. But I do want to be really careful of labeling someone as an abuser. I think 
that is a very heavy and weighty label to put on someone. And I'm not even calling my ex an abuser. I think there were definitely areas, as evidenced by this podcast, that he stepped in to exhibiting behaviors that were emotionally abusive. But I think, you know, I always want to reserve labels whenever possible because that creates space and hope and just sending the intention that someone is going to grow into healthier. So if you hear me use the term abuser, it's really just to conserve words. It's not to label anybody or to reinforce that mindset in anyone listening. So I think, you know, if we circle back and think about how isolation helps an abuser have greater control in your life. I do think that that was one of the motivators for Kyle not wanting me to talk to friends or family about our relationship. I think at the end of the day, he just didn't like the advice they gave. But he never would come out and say that. He would just invalidate them. And invalidation is a very big piece of isolation. So Kyle basically told me that the opinion of everyone I was talking to about our relationship, which was honestly just a few trusted confidants, was wrong because they had the same worldview as me and that the rest of the world thought like he did. And this is how isolation usually starts. So a toxic partner will drop little comments in repetitive ways that undermine your trust in people you have relied on or trusted before. And that helps them influence you to cut off the access of those people to your life. A sign of having been through that is looking back and realizing you held back details from your family and friends of how bad things were. That's something that I see in my story. A lot of my friends and family say now that they didn't realize the extent of the dysfunction or else they would have intervened. So Kyle was emotionally isolating me, but I got a little taste of him starting to extend that isolation to real physical isolation. I lived in San Diego and he lived in Los Angeles. So we would drive back and forth to see each other, especially on weekends. I would go to his apartment or he would come to mine. And one day I drove up to visit him in the middle of the week. It was kind of spontaneous, so it's not something my mom would have known what I was doing. And because I was a single woman living alone in a city, I had my location shared with my parents and it really just gave them peace of mind in knowing where I was. So my mom saw that I was in a location that she didn't recognize on this, you know, I don't know, I think she went to text me or something and my location popped up and she called me because the name of Kyle's apartment complex sounded very similar to a neighborhood in San Diego that is known to not be a very nice neighborhood. So my mom sees I'm in a different location than I usually am. She thinks it's a bad area in San Diego. And what goes through her mind is I better call Chelsea to make sure she's okay. When she calls, I answer. I explain everything to her. Really short conversation. All is well. And when I hang up, Kyle says to me, why do your parents have your location? I explain to him why. I'm a single woman. I'm living alone in a city. And it's just for safety. Why do you care? And he says, well, I just think it's really controlling. And when we get married, I don't want them knowing where you are. So talk about controlling. He, of course, explains it as it's an invasion of our privacy. I was definitely uneasy about it. Just kind of this thought that he didn't want other people knowing where I was when I was with him. I think that's super creepy. So that is isolation. And another behavior on the list of emotionally abusive traits that often goes with isolation is monopolization. 
So monopolization has some crossover with isolation. It can include that jealousy of other relationships that we see in both. And the excuse for isolation may be something we see with monopolization, like, I want to spend all my time with you. But monopolization is focused more on time and attention than relationships. It's almost like the natural progression of isolation. It's not enough that you've cut out all your relationships. Now your romantic relationship has to be the sole source of your energy, focus, and input. The tough thing about monopolization is it usually comes in a very romantic package. So for example, Kyle was very competitive with me being in medical school because that was a pursuit that competed with him for my attention. On the surface, he acted like he loved it. So he would tell people, my girlfriend is going to be a doctor. And he would say stuff like, I can't wait to introduce you as my wife, doctor. And then he would say his last name, which I will not say to, as Dr. Julia says, protect the guilty. But then he would complain that we weren't spending enough time together when the reason we weren't spending enough time together was because I was in medical school. He worked a nine to five marketing job and anyone who knows anything about medical school knows that it's pretty much around the clock. So my invitation for him to come be with me while I did my homework or eat dinner or between shifts or what have you was always open. He could hang out at my apartment and we would just kind of touch base, you know, as we did life together, much like it would be if we were going to be married. But he would never take me up on that invitation and then he would just complain about me as our reason for not spending enough time together. And he would complain about me in a way that would sound really sweet and romantic. He would say, oh, I just want to spend all my time with you. It's because I love you. So with monopolization, the needs for attention are beyond what is reasonable for a normal human. The more you give, the more they want. And it is presented as something very romantic so that you don't question it. So things really escalated right before we broke up for the last time. He started making a lot of time demands on me. This is where kind of the excess of monopolization is illustrated. He always wanted me to be the one to come visit him, even though he had a lot more spare time than I did. And he would make excuses like he proposed that my schedule had more flexibility than his or traffic was better for me than for him. And if I wasn't the one to visit, visits would just rarely happen. And then he would complain and it would somehow be my fault. So I have talked about this a little bit in my book. The irony of all of this was that he had been living in Las Vegas and quit his job to be near me, is what he said. And he moved to Los Angeles, which is several hours away from San Diego. I had actually asked him to move to San Diego because I had two years of medical school left. And I was pretty anchored there, and we were planning on getting married in less than a year. But he was very against taking a job in San Diego. He said that all of, out of all the jobs in San Diego, they were just not the right type of job for him. And when he took a job in Los Angeles, I had asked him to come live in San Diego and commute or live halfway. And after that conversation, he signed a lease in Los Angeles without telling me. And then he sent a text that said, great news, I found an apartment and sent me a link to his place in LA where he had signed the lease. So he was literally blaming me for a problem he created and saying that it was my fault we weren't spending enough time together when he moved from a major city to be near me, but moved to the wrong city. 
the week of my boards, which you take two sets of boards to get your license, the first is halfway through medical school, and the second is after. You have to pass you have to pass both in order to get your license. The week of my first boards, he wanted me to come visit him, and I had been visiting him at his place since he moved to LA, and this time I said no. I needed to study for my boards and wanted to rest, and that made him very upset. So I asked him to come down to my apartment to spend the weekend with me and basically just do life together. I told him, bring your work and you can work while I work. And he got upset that I asked him to come to my apartment. He said he would be more comfortable in his apartment and that mine was boring when I asked him why he wouldn't come down. The straw that broke the camel's back was I had wanted to study really hard on Friday and then Saturday and Sunday, go to a conference at a church in San Diego. It kind of came up, I'm trying to think of the word, synchronously. It kind of came up synchronously. And so I thought it would just be a really good way to rest and fill up my soul. The conference was about a 20 to 25 minute drive from my apartment. And I I just happened to mention that to Kyle. And I said, you know, you could come with me. I would love that. Again, asking or wanting him to support me in my pursuit, kind of like the isolation, how what I deep down really wanted was him to come with me to my family Easter gathering. What I wanted deep down in this situation and actually communicated to him was him to just come and be and support me with his presence while I studied for my boards. Kyle's response to my request for him to come down and spend time with me and support me was that in the time, the 20 to 25 minutes I spent driving to and from that conference, I could have driven to see him. And so I was making excuses and quotes. That was what he said not to visit him. He calls me to tell me that we're probably going to break up because of this, packs a bag, and instead of coming to visit me, goes to Mexico with my brother. I don't hear from him. And once he leaves for Mexico, I send him an email. I'm not proud to admit this, but I was basically groveling for him to not break up with me. And next time I hear from him is actually when my brother calls me. My brother loops me into FaceTime. Kyle's there and just out of the woodwork. Haven't heard from him since he's like, we're going to break up. And then he's telling me, I love you. And he starts sending me photos of a ring he bought in Mexico that he said he was wearing as a wedding ring, marking his devotion to me. And then on their way back from Mexico, he and my brother stop by my apartment. Kyle is like all over me. And before they leave, he basically asked me to come back to his place. He said to me, come with me, come home. I and wrote about this in my book as at the moment that that happened, like I felt connected. It felt kind of romantic to me. And I don't think looking back, I can judge his motive, but there definitely is a manipulative feel to the situation. Like he goes through all these romantic charades of the ring and telling me to come home. Basically to try to get me to do something I said I didn't want to do in the first place. Looking back, I also know that I should have probably felt more concerned. But I actually just felt a lot of relief that my email worked. I also remember wanting to go to his apartment but choosing not to because I knew I wouldn't have any say on anything if I let him win that battle. That was a really difficult choice to make. It's within my healing process. I looked back on that moment many times and felt a longing to make a different choice in that moment. 
and yet feel proud that I had the fortitude to make the right choice. So fast forward two weeks from this time and I have two weeks of break between my quarters. I was planning on spending one week visiting my family and one week with Kyle. I made plans without talking to him about it first. And I do think that for the stage of relationship we were at, that was a little bit inconsiderate. I think it would have been just better to talk to him about my plans. But I didn't have an engagement ring on, and so I wasn't really in the mindset of consulting him for my plans. And when I did it, he absolutely flipped out. He was so upset. This ultimately sent him into the spiral that led to us breaking up. He told me that we needed to be seeing each other. So these are some things I've talked about in my book, and I, I probably mentioned them on other episodes. But he told me we needed to be seeing each other a minimum of three to four times during the week. And I told him that I was willing to try for that as much as I could, but I didn't know if my schedule would allow it. And he would maybe need to take some of the responsibility of that and come to visit me. He really dug his heels in on this and, you know, asserted that I needed to be the one who came and visited him. And if it didn't work with my schedule, I needed to change my schedule. This was just illogical because I didn't get schedule options. I pretty much just went to the classes I was assigned. With the exception of some electives I could have opted out of, but I didn't tell him that because some of the electives you only get one opportunity to take. And I didn't feel like I had been going through, you know, whatever, six plus years at this point of secondary school to just not learn what I was paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to learn. So when I told him, I can change my schedule. He said, well, then you need to change schools. I knew at this point that we were in no logic territory because I was going to the only naturopathic medical school in this state. I would actually have had to move out of state to change my schedule. So when I told him that to illustrate that it wouldn't solve our problems at all, he told me, well, figure it out. If you can't figure it out, there are plenty of other girls who want to date me. And this was only a couple months before the date we had wanted to get married on. I remember running into a family friend in the middle of dealing with all of this and he could tell something was wrong. So I told him what was happening and he said to me, Chelsea, kick that man to the curb. And I do remember at that point feeling like this is not healthy. So the other side of the monopolizing that really dovetailed with isolation beyond wanting me to make him the center of my world was that he was very resistant to coming into my world. So for example, the Easter I was talking about earlier, we ended up driving my, to meet my family the next morning, Easter Sunday at church, and Kyle was supposed to spend the day with us, but he spent like an hour with us after church before driving back home to spend Easter with his family and trying to convince me to come with him. Most of that hour he spent with, you know, my sister were like trying to make peace because she was seen through his unhealthy behaviors and I really wanted them to be on good terms because I wanted to get married to him. He didn't eat any Easter dinner with us and I remember feeling just sad and disappointed by that because this was our first holiday as a couple really just practicing what it would be like when we were married. So it was practicing being a unit and I had immersed in his family and I was so excited for him to immerse in mine and he just shut it down. Another time my sister, who was a very talented athlete, was in Junior Olympics, which was about an hour away from his house, but only about 20 minutes from my parents' house. It was Part of it was on a weekend, so I wanted, you know, I had wanted him to come 
you know, go visit his parents for the weekend and then see me. And he wouldn't. And then my family went to Disneyland after to celebrate. And Kyle and I had purchased season passes to go to Disneyland together. He lived pretty close to Disneyland and he wouldn't come with that. But when I drove home from all those events without stopping at his house, which I did because he had multiple occasions to see me and refused. And at that point, I was just very tired. I wanted to go home. He made an issue of it. He did go to some of my events with friends with me when he would come to stay with me in San Diego. And then afterwards, he would say stuff like, your friends are weird. So it was really this dramatic attempt to pull me into his world with indifference or even undermining towards my world. It was, and, and I think you see in all these examples, really how monopolization works. It's a demand for all your time and attention to be focused on this person. And then it's also the demand is you come into my world. I am not willing to come into yours. And if you don't come into my world, there's no world in which we coexist together. So I think these stories really nicely highlight the control that isolation and monopolization accomplish for someone who is acting in emotionally abusive ways. I also wanted to bring up the medical school example specifically because monopolization behaviors are jealous of anything that compete for attention with your partner. So that can be relationships, but it can also be you having dreams and pursuits that aren't about that person. And monopolization makes you feel guilty or like a bad partner for having those. But as soon as you let go of them, as soon as you let go of those dreams or those pursuits, that's a key step in losing your identity. And as we know, in emotionally abusive being relationships, we lose our identities. And that's the whole thing I am on a mission to help women reclaim. So I hope that this kind of piece of the story helps you see that progression that happens of cutting off from, you know, your your world and that piece of your identity and then cutting off from your dreams and pursuits. So next on the list is spiritual abuse. This is a huge one. Spiritual abuse was also a huge problem in my relationship with Kyle. And as you know from listening to other episodes of the podcast, something that is really close to my heart to talk about. Before launching into the details of this, I really like how I explained what spiritual abuse is in my Instagram series about emotionally abusive behavior. So here is a quote from that. In this behavior, the abuser may mock you or belittle your spiritual beliefs. They often take on the posture of correcting an error in your naive thinking while insisting that they hold the correct political or religious truth. So Kyle and I both grew up in religious environments. When I met him at 18 years old, he was studying theology at a denominational university. And he said his favorite book was a theology book. I would say that now, because of my experience with seeing how theology can be used as an abusive tactic, those would at least be orange flags for me. But back then, I think they made him seem safe to me. And that's something that I think actually draws people to religion is this idea that all of the answers are in a defined construct. And that's the same reason I think people put too much trust in government or any other ideological system. It provides the this illusion that the world is safe 
and that there are things we can do to control our world. I think that Aubrey Redinger kind of connected this to toxic relationships really well in her interview, talking about how a lot of times people, well, she was actually talking about herself, how she was looking for someone who had all the answers and that they could impact the world with all the right answers. And I think a lot of people who are attracted to more toxic relationships have a history of some type of trauma or unsafe, you know, lack of safety in their world. And so I personally believe that's one of the reasons why, why there's so much religious abuse overlapping with emotional abuse, because I think somebody having religion or a very strong ideal gives a feeling of safety. Like they have the answers. I don't have to figure them out. And, and so initially I think it draws us to them, even though it is later used as a control tool. Kyle and I both had our processes of disengaging from the religiosity we grew up in. Kyle's style of doing that was this recurring pattern of rebellion and reform, whereas my style was learning to discard the religious to press deeper into a more spiritual and relational engagement with God. This alone made it confusing to navigate relationship because I didn't really have a framework for where he was letting his life from. For me, even though I'm not religious anymore, faith still guides my life and my decisions and my opinions. And for him, sometimes it did and sometimes it didn't. And I think a lot of it was dependent on whether or not it was convenient or not for him. So, you know, like some dynamic in our relationship that I might be bringing my faith perspective into. If a faith perspective gave him more control over me, then he would push that really hard. And then he would maybe discard that same faith perspective a few months later when it wasn't benefiting him in relationship. In the religious environment that I had grown up in, I had been sexually abused. Honestly, it was an emotionally and verbally abusive community as well. Kyle liked to hold this religious background over me as a form of control. So there were certain behaviors in the relationship that I wasn't comfortable with him doing. And I told him up front before we started dating about those things so that he could make an informed decision as to whether or not he wanted to enter the relationship with me on the terms of being respectful of those opinions. So I really didn't didn't want it to be an ultimatum or a controlling thing of me forcing my beliefs on him. I wanted it to be, I'm going to honestly let you know what I'm comfortable with and what I'm not comfortable with in relationship. And then you as an adult, make a choice whether you're comfortable with those boundaries. There's one particular behavior that comes to mind for me. I'm not going to say exactly what it was so as not to put him, it's not to like paint him more negatively than is necessary. But I remember not exactly knowing if I was against it or not. I was just a little bit uneasy about it. And his response to me was that every male in the world did that behavior and I felt discomfort with it because I had a religious mindset. And as someone who had been abused by religion and really wanted to have faith without these burdensome theologies that often come with religion, him saying that definitely got into my head. So I just decided to seek outside counsel on it. I talked to a variety of married couples that I knew. And I asked them how they had handled this behavior in their relationships. They all had a little bit of a different answer, which is good, right? Because it means that there's no one discreet truth. It's uh, an area where you figure it out. And 
what I did pick up from that was that not every man in the world needed to participate in that behavior. And in fact, there were men who were choosing not to without their partners expressing, you know, lack of ease with it. And when I brought the subject up again with this new perspective, Kyle basically disregarded everyone I talked to because they had a faith background. He actually got really angry at me about it and began yelling at me and basically portraying the picture that I was naive because I had faith. Now, I will say that I understand that everybody I am talking to having a faith perspective does skew the way they filter it a little bit. But I did that for two reasons. One, because, again, I was living from my faith, my place of faith. And the clearly communicated expectation was that Kyle was going to be doing that alongside me. And when we got back together for the last time he planned to get married, he was expressing to me that that was something he wanted to do. So it wasn't me forcing my ideals on him. It was me trusting what he had communicated to me and then using that as a framework for a shared decision-making and relationship. The other thing is, I asked those people because they were people I trusted and because Kyle wasn't willing to talk to anybody about this at all. So I think you can't really get mad at the sources if you're not willing to source yourself, source information yourself. So Kyle used spiritual abuse as a way of pressuring me to do things I was not comfortable with physically. I think this is a really important conversation because regardless of whether you have any spiritual beliefs or not, I truly don't believe that women owe their partners anything physical. And I think the sad thing is that false religious theologies have actually perpetuated the idea that women have to take care of their partner's physical needs to keep their partner from doing something bad like cheating. And if you don't, it's your fault. And that's just such a mindset that is so degrading to women. I think physical relationship is a natural expression of connectedness that comes with a healthy relationship. But I don't think that anyone has a claim on your body simply because you're dating or married. In any case, I did let Kyle know before we started dating what I was comfortable with and what I was not because, again, I felt like it would be fair for him to know. He said he felt the same way. But when we started dating, he was always pressuring me to do more and more than I was comfortable with. If I said no, he would portray my response to something that was coming from religious fear about physical relationship, which wasn't true. I know that that can be true, and that's something that I am unpacking more in the episode with Kristen and also the episode where we will talk about theology. But I enjoyed physical affection, and I felt very comfortable with different aspects of physical relationship in the right context. But Kaya would basically tell me everybody in the world, which in generalization, like everyone in the world, I've mentioned this a few times in the physical abuse, let that stick in your brain as a red flag when someone is generalizing their opinion to everyone in the world. So he would say everyone in the world expects, you know, X, Y, or Z from their partner physically, and you can't say that because you're religious. Or he would say things like, oh, my friends think you're crazy, but I love you. So it came across at the time as sweet and accepting, like, oh, you're so crazy, but I'll keep you. But it really served a purpose. It painted the world as on his side and him as this haven of safety in this world that I was so different from and didn't fit into. If you extend that idea to its full implications, 
is basically saying that there isn't a place of safety and belonging for you in the world. The only place of safety and belonging is with me. That contributed to keeping me trapped in an abusive dynamic as it does for many women because it breeds this idea that you will never find anything better. Oftentimes we are told that Kyle definitely told me that. He told me, I wish he knew how good I treated you. So we tend to hold on to what is in the relationship because we feel like it's better than being without anything. Kyle also used religious control as an excuse to place physical demands on me, which is very common, too common. He created this idea that because of my faith, I was not going to have an interest in sex with him after we got married. I never felt this way and I never said anything to him that suggested that. This was something that he made up in his head and he said that because of that, I needed to commit to a certain number of days that we were going to do it weekly after we got married, which you've heard me mention in other episodes and if you've read my book, you've heard it there too. I'm going to touch on this more when we get to sexual abuse, but it's another way that he used the concept of faith to bully me into feeling like what he wanted was right and the normal thing and what I wanted was this crazy religious thing. He liked to argue with me about the things I believed. This was especially frustrating to me because I never hid from him what I believed. And there was there were always very well-defined discussions before getting back together, as I mentioned before, that I wasn't willing to get back into relationship with him unless faith was something he also wanted to respect and pursue with me. And as I mentioned earlier, he gave the impression that that was the case. So I think that at the heart of the arguing, he was trying to make a point that I was unintelligent for having faith, that I was this lost little girl who had grown up sheltered from the real world, that I needed him to expand my understanding and perspective. This wasn't the case at all. I had a lot of life experience by the time we were together. I'd moved away from home and small town life at the age of 17. Most of the environments I immersed in were not religious, and I had friends from all different types of backgrounds, beliefs, and lifestyles. But, you know, the, this type of argument that, or these discussions that had, you know, dialogue in them that painted this picture of me serves a purpose for someone who's using emotionally abusive behaviors or relationship. Because if Kyle could convince me that I was this kind of lost girl, naive girl. It gave him greater decision-making power because it meant he got to define God for me. He was especially argumentative about spiritual experiences with me, which I think is something very key to know. I have a lot of synchronous experiences with my faith journey. Things like praying for God to talk to me and seeing my name written on objects outside my window or you know, thinking I heard God say something to me and saying, hey, can you tell me if this is right? And having a stranger come up and regurgitate exactly what I had just thought. So you'll, if you read my book, you'll kind of pick up on how I move through the world with those experiences engaging with God. And regarding these experiences, Kyle displayed another iteration of spiritual abuse, which is insisting that the abuser holds the correct religious or political ideology. He had been trained in a very denominational type of theology when he was in college. It's not one that I believe to be true, although I think there, are, I think they have some truths in that denomination. I don't think it's all false either. But that very denominational theology often leads to degradation of women. And even though Kyle did not believe what he had learned from that theology anymore, he would use it to argue with me. 
and tell me that my experiences were not true because they didn't fit this very specific theological framework. This made me really upset because he was discounting things that had actually happened based on some idea in a book that he didn't even believe in. But I believe the reason he targeted these beliefs so hard and why I wanted to share this is because he saw God in my life and me hearing from God as a threat to his position and influence over me. God was something that could prevent him from totally possessing me. God was something that could, you know, tell me the truth about how he was treating me. So God had to go too. He took a very mocking tone with me. Like if I was as smart as he was, I wouldn't believe in God. And while I understand that not everyone feels comfortable with taking the leap from intellectual to mystical faith, or, well, what I should say is, I understand that not everyone feels comfortable taking the leap from intellectual to mystical that faith in anything, not just God, requires. I also felt like the belittling me for my faith was an attack at what was most precious to me and who I was. I felt like it was a very pointed weapon. So we see this progression, again, of the emotionally abusive behaviors. First, he attacked relationships that were precious to me, then dreams and pursuits that were precious to me. And what do we see here? The slow dismantling of identity so that I would become more and more consumed by his identity. I really think that spiritual abuse is one of the darkest forms of abuse in isolation and monopolization. Abusers get you to stop listening to outside voices you trust. But in spiritual abuse, they get you to stop listening to the inside voice that you trust. And that makes them, by default, the only voice you trust and gives them full control in relationship. Every word they say then becomes gospel. And this is a very scary stage of the possession of abuse. I think it also severs your connection with your intuition, making it very hard to recognize their behaviors as abusive and serves you up very nicely for emotional abuse and for gaslighting, which is the next behavior I want to cover. I've described a lot of gaslighting already in spiritual abuse. Gaslighting is manipulating you by using psychological warfare in order to question your sanity or your view of reality. In the case of the spiritual abuse I've described, it was the way Kyle discounted my view of reality. He defined reality and he really wanted to be the one to do that for me. That was though a theme in our relationship. It wasn't just in spiritual abuse, there was always something wrong with my view of reality. All conflicts, fights, and problems were my fault. Everything had a way of getting turned back on me. When I was in medical school, the fact that we weren't seeing each other was my fault. It was my schedule or the fact, as he called it, that I didn't, well, maybe he didn't call it that. I don't remember at this point. But basically, it was my fault because I didn't want to see him. If I was uncomfortable with him physically, it was because I was crazy. And during the last stretch of our relationship, when we were planning on getting married, another girl kissed him. I'll talk about that more in the line section, but he continued to follow her on Instagram after that. He had slept with a lot of women who were generous with how much of their bodies they shared on Instagram, and he continued to follow them. And there was this joke between us that if he had followed everyone he had slept with, there would be no one left for him to follow. I didn't love that, but I didn't usually make a big deal out of it. However, when I expressed his comfort that he and the girl who had kissed him were still in contact via email and he was following her on Instagram, the version of the story was that I had picked a fight. When I was struggling with him moving to LA instead of near me, when we were supposed to be married in three months and I was 
only halfway done with medical school. The story was that I was being unsupportive of his big transition. I do want to say, I think I definitely lacked some gentleness and just, I think just a, like a compassionate attitude toward what the transition required. So I do just want to own my part in that. And I think that's important to say because when I'm giving life like this, I can just make it sound like he was this terrible person, but I wasn't perfect in relation to either. So there was never really any scenario in which Kyle had done something wrong. It was always a scenario created by me. At one point, Kyle went as far as telling me you can't have that opinion when I was expressing how I felt about something. So the gaslighting was just very targeted at dismantling my voice. I also want to mention bullying as a subset of gaslighting here because I think I think that's more how it played out in my relationship. But bullying is a distinct form of emotional abuse. Bullying can include insulting or name-calling you. It can include using derogatory terms towards you as such as stupid, gross, worthless. It can also include la just lacking empathy for you or others or making insults about you or others. It can include ignoring you or giving the silent treatment or playing tricks on you and scaring you in a cruel way. I've heard a lot of women talk about their experiences with bullying in romantic relationships and it can be very severe. I, it's not something I feel was a major feature of the toxicity in my last relationship and I'm very thankful for that. But there are some things that had some bullying flavors that I do want to touch on because again, I think we learn from story and from example and from aligning with what other people have been through with our own experiences. So if we had a Venn diagram of the overlap between bullying and gaslighting behaviors, this first example would fall more into the gaslighting territory. I remember talking about a movie that I watched with Kyle. I was telling him how I didn't really like it and I wasn't sure why. My mom had kind of felt the same way and she thought that part of the reason was that the main character was supposed to be stunningly beautiful and she just didn't feel the actress they had chosen to represent the main character had those vibes and made it hard for her to get into the storyline. When I mentioned this to Kyle, he said it was mean and judgmental, which is not intrinsically bullying, but it is gaslighting in nature because he was twisting what I said to create a certain reality, but he often attached names or labels to his distortions of reality, and I do think this sort of name-calling carried a shadow of bullying in it. A similar situation happened the night before I took Kyle to counseling the first time, I made a comment that was a little bit careless and Kyle launched that into a full-scale attack against me. He started calling me racist, even though I'm from a mixed family and my skin is a different color than my biological father's. I obviously am Caucasian looking. I'm not making any claims to look like a minority, but I it's an issue that I try to be really sensitive to. He was calling me negative. I remember feeling just confused and confusion is definitely a sign of trauma, but I was feeling confused because he seemed to be perceiving me so much differently than anyone else in my world did. And that is something that we see a lot with gaslighting. You start to question what is reality and that's the way it worked with me. I was, you know, starting to wonder, am I negative? Like he's describing me. When someone in such an intimate relationship with you is calling you those names, it can cause you to think that maybe they're seeing something in you that nobody else sees in you because he knows you so well or knows me so well. And what that interaction did 
will shift me into a place of being willing to take full responsibility for the problems in the relationship so that I essentially gaslit myself. Kyle also did withhold physical affection when he was angry. There was one time near the end of our relationship when the date we had planned for our wedding was approaching. We'd been having a lot of conflict, but Kyle still hadn't proposed. And we were at a retail store that I liked. And some of the nicer locations of this retail store would carry wedding dresses. The wedding dresses were their own department, so not anyone could just walk through and try on a dress. You had to work with a consultant like you would at a wedding boutique. One of the wedding dresses that I had been looking at online was by this label. And I said to Kyle, I wonder if the dress that I like is here. He encouraged me to see about trying the dress on. And I didn't want to because I felt really uncomfortable trying on a wedding dress without an engagement ring. And I was trying to tell Kyle, or I was trying to explain this to Kyle. I said, I don't want to try on a dress unless we're actually being married. That night, we went on a dinner date, and he would not hold my hand the entire night. I tried several times to grab his hand, as was my habit, when we were at the car, when we were walking to and from the restaurant, and he just pulled his hand away. I don't remember how he explained it at the time, but later that evening, he told me it was because he was upset about what happened at the dress shop. He ended up turning this back on me and telling me that I was the one not committed to getting married, even though my reservations were just we have these issues that it would be healthy to work through before we get married so that we can have a successful marriage. I look at that as commitment because relationship takes work, but he just wanted this like event to solidify maybe his control over me. Maybe he was just really afraid of abandonment and he expressed it in a really toxic way. But anyway, that weekend, he also cut any recognizable part of me out of anything he posted on social media. So he posted a picture of our date, but cropped my face out. One of the issues that we were having tension about that weekend was he was going to a bachelor party and I told him I was concerned that he was going to go get drunk and smoke weed at this party. And I know that's a side, that is a societal norm for bachelor parties, but those were things that I was personally uneasy with. And I felt like for the relationship that we were in, that was not what I wanted the future father of my children to be doing. This wasn't something new. It had been an issue in the past. And he knew that respecting my preferences on these things was pretty much came with the territory of dating me. So when he told me that I was the one not committed to getting married, I expressed to him that I did want to get married, but I was uncomfortable with the thought of it coming so soon when we were still working through the same issues that had broken us before, so close to our proposed wedding day and he responded by gaslighting me saying why are you trying to control my life so I think what we see here is the gaslighting as it expressed in my relationship was redefining reality by using really bullying labels that caused me to question myself my identity, and what reality really was. In a similar territory to bullying and gaslighting is criticism. So criticism includes attempting to belittle you and dismantle your confidence, mental capabilities, intelligence, upbringing, or physical appearance. I would say that criticism was definitely present in my relationship with Kyle, but it was very hard for me to identify while in the relationship because it happened along love bombing in the relationship or alongside love bombing. Kyle was so sappy and romantic and he said all the right things. It didn't feel like it would be possible for a critical feeling toward me to exist 
in the context of all of that. So when he would criticize me, I didn't always catch it. The first time I really remember catching that he had criticized me was during an argument. In this argument, Kyle was trying to convince me that I didn't have any real health issues and they just existed inside my head. And this was very hurtful to me because I had extremely complex health issues. Part of my story is that the Mayo Clinic told me I was a difficult case and they didn't know what to do with me. And Kyle didn't really want to understand that because he didn't like how my health conditions inconvenienced him. So he started trying to convince me that they didn't exist. And I was still trying to push back on him with logic. I was reading, you know, PubMed articles about the physiology of chronic pain and trying to explain them to him and compile them for him. In retrospect, I think the criticism had started more subtly, though, leading up to this. So I had a pretty limited diet, and this really bothered Kyle. It was something he would complain about, and I also just didn't do well staying up late. And when we were together, I consistently stayed up much later than I wanted to for him, but I just didn't do well staying up late while out, like in a bar or a club setting. And Kyle would complain about that too. And he would drop little comments like how boring it was to come visit me in San Diego. So I think there had been some criticism going on that I hadn't thought before leading up to this argument. But during this particular argument, I was talking to him about medical therapies. I was interested in trying since conventional treatments hadn't helped. At the time, I was working with a Stanford integrative rheumatologist. So the therapies were very solid research-based therapies. And Kyle, who had no medical background, told me they were bullshit. That stood out to me because... Prior to this, he had really glamorized and flattered me for being on the path to becoming a doctor. So this felt very left field, and it was my first taste of that classic emotionally abusive pattern of love bombing you cycled with putting you down. I also want to point out that he was critical of my upbringing. It's not something that I noted as a big problem when we were dating, but this is a feature of behaviors that characterize constant criticism, so I do briefly want to highlight it. I feel like Kyle went between either really loving my family or being critical of them from a place of jealousy. I definitely don't come from a perfect family, but we are close and we're committed on working on our stuff to result in togetherness. Kyle liked to ping our attachments as so unhealthy. My family had also been part of a very strict religious environment when I was young, as I've mentioned in other episodes and things. It was a, this, we broke free of this abusive community, but he liked to portray my family values like they were still part of that abusive, abusive culture. I think he wanted to believe that was true because if it was, again, he could convince me to isolate from my family and possess or claim me more. He and one of my sisters also got along pretty well when they first met, but she grew increasingly suspicious of him as the relationship went on. And when that happened, they absolutely hated each other. And I think he was critical of her because she was the only one who saw through his manipulation at the time. I had told her we were planning on getting married in a couple of months. And she had told me, if you marry him, I will not come to your wedding. That is a That kind of stand is a very big threat to an abusive personality. So if you're in a relationship where things just don't feel right, pay attention to the person or people that your partner criticizes a lot. That's probably somebody who holds some really good insight that they feel threatened by. At the end of my relationship with Kyle, the criticism was more focused on my body, which was again something new. For the majority of our relationship, Kyle had actually been very kind and supportive of body changes in me. With chronic illness, I did have a lot of ups and downs in my body. 
Sometimes I was a little jumpy, and sometimes I was very small. And Kyle had always been complimentary of my body and all of But near the end of our relationship, he just started to get less body positive. So the way that my fat distribution is on my chest is it sometimes looks like I have a very small amount of armpit boob. I'm probably honestly the only one who notices it, and it occurs no matter how toned my arms are. And I remember one day mentioning it to Kyle, just, you know, I feel a little insecure about this, obviously looking for encouragement and reinforcement. And he told me, I don't have to tell you to do, do some push-ups. I don't think this statement itself is intrinsically terrible. It wasn't what I would consider a gentle or caring response, but mostly it was just a very different attitude toward my body that I had heard from him before. And I think there were some critical undertones in it. Around the same time, we were on a boat trip with other couples. We were having a really nice time. And out of the blue, he told me that he wouldn't love me anymore if I got fat. It was so unexpected. I actually thought he was joking. And I made a joke back about, I said, okay, I'm going to eat this entire cheesecake right now. And we both laughed and I didn't think anything of it until he said it to me two more times on separate occasions. At this time, I was actually on the leaner side of my typical weight range. I took really good care of myself, so I confronted him about it, and I asked him if he genuinely thought I was going to get fat, and if he really meant he wouldn't love me anymore if that happened. He responded by basically saying, and when I say give these little recaps, basically saying it's because I don't remember the verbatim quotes that happened so long ago. He responded, though, by saying that he expected anyone he was with to be growing. And then in the middle of saying that, he actually started laughing and said, well, not growing that way. And then continued to say that if you're gaining weight, you're not growing. And this is actually more of a verbatim quote. I do remember that. Kyle did go to the gym and average him out. He didn't eat particularly well. And this definitely, well, actually, it upset me a little bit. And I started telling him that it's not always so simple for women. There can be pregnancy or health issues or emotional stressors that can make it hard for women to lose weight. Kyle's response was that those things didn't really affect it. And you just need to be changing how you eat or going to the gym more. The irony of this is that Kyle did not take very good care of himself. The other irony of this is that I recently took a trip to a city Kyle lives in now. And I saw someone whose face looked so much like his. But I could genuinely not decide if it was Kyle or not because this guy had love handles. And Kyle had always been pretty thin. And there was this part of me that wanted to say to him, good thing I didn't marry you. I would have stopped loving you when you gained weight. Now, obviously, I wouldn't do that. I don't even know for sure if it was Kyle. But it did give me a little bit of an internal chuckle. So with this, I also experienced a flavor of another type of emotional abuse, which is excessive monitoring. I'm going to mention this as a subset of criticism because luckily this wasn't a huge type of emotional abuse in our relationship. Although I do think that controlling who I talk to and not wanting people to know my location things was also another flavor of excessive monitoring. But monitoring behaviors generally include telling you what and when you can eat, drink, and how often you should be exercising to meet your partner's physical ideals. They include telling you what you can and can't wear attributing abuse to your fault, saying that you deserve what happens to you or that you instigated the problem. So I've definitely gone over Kyle attributing his emotional abuse behaviors to my, to me, to it being my fault and describe, you know, different ways in which he blamed me for instigating the problems in our relationship. I'm going to focus more on the physical monitoring piece of this. So the first example is that Kyle would not keep food at his house that I could eat. 
I always wanted to go grocery shopping and cook for us to save money, but he would say, no, we'll eat out. The problem was he would drink a protein shake in the morning and then wouldn't get ready to start thinking about dinner until 4 p.m. That meant I would go the whole day without access to food. There weren't a lot of restaurants I could eat at then due to health and dietary restrictions. I don't know if DoorDash existed back then. If it did, it just probably wasn't on my radar because of like being financially frugal in medical school. And Death Kyle didn't want to go to the same restaurants all the time. I would do my best to find something at places that weren't exactly catered to me, but I often wouldn't feel good when I ate the food from places like that. So I wouldn't eat very much. I also just often didn't have an appetite when I was with him because of all the conflict at the end of our relationship. So a lot of times I was going hungry because by the time we got a meal, I couldn't stomach more than a few bites. Kyle would then criticize me for not eating enough. So it was a no-win situation because I was actually losing weight from being starved out at his house by day and having no appetite because of relationship stress by night. Kyle was also critical towards me financially, which brings us to financial abuse. This is one of my favorite types to talk about because it's so prevalent. And this was the second most difficult type of abuse for me to recover from. In the early days of our relationship, Kyle was very generous. I think this was part of the love bombing. And I also think it was a genuine expression of love. He loved to buy me thoughtful gifts from stores that he knew I liked. So I remember once I was in college and I needed a new umbrella and I would just go without when I was in college. So he went shopping for me for a new umbrella and he went to J. Crew of all places, which is super impractical, but also super cute because I was going to a preppy school and I really liked J. Crew when I was in college and he wanted to get me something nice. And of course they didn't have umbrellas, but he ended up buying me this super ornate crystal necklace that was between 200 to $300 and he sent it to me. So that was kind of what I was used to in relationship with him. I wasn't demanding of it though. I never like asked him to buy me a gift, acted like I expected it. It was what he did. So after we started planning on getting married, he started making comments on how I spent money. I was extremely frugal, so I honestly don't even remember what he found fault in, but I do know that for some reason he wanted me to be saving money. This created an interesting dynamic because at this point in our relationship, he also seemed to enjoy getting gifts from me and seemed dissatisfied that I wasn't planning enough fun activities. Like, you know, we talked about going to a comedy show, which is maybe $60 a person in San Diego for when he came to visit me. So I again felt like I was in a no-win situation because he was unhappy that we weren't going to shows or going to a bunch of nice restaurants, but I didn't plan those things because he didn't want me spending money. Or I would think of a gift I wanted to give him and I would not buy it because he didn't want me spending money. And I remember one time I told him about a gift I had wanted to get him. And I said, but I didn't because I figured you'd not want me spending any money. And he said, that's not true. That's not a good reason not to give me a gift, essentially. And there was definitely a little bit of guilting or shaming tone to his correction. It wasn't a conversational clarifying of intentions that this topic could have been approached with in a healthy relationship. And I left the conversation with the impression that him wanting or not wanting me to spend money was just really about when it benefited him or not. I always thought about him even having an opinion on how I spent money as a bit inappropriate because we were not married or engaged when that was going on. When we were looking at rings, he was working for a startup and he wasn't making much because it was still in its early phases. This was always his excuse for why he had not bought a ring yet. He had invested a lot of his personal savings into the startup 
So he only had about $10,000 in his account from what I was aware of. And during this time, he had been advised to have me sign a prenup. I thought this was just absolutely laughable. There was a little bit of inference from him that I would need to pay off my student loans. And I told him, I don't need your money, which didn't even exist at that point. He was extremely critical of me for having student loans. I had no credit card or other type of debt. I didn't even have a car loan at that point. And to give you some context, I had less than $10,000 of loans for my Ivy League undergrad education. But I did have to take loans for medical school, which is pretty standard. And Kyle would tell me that I would never be able to pay off my loans, that I wasn't going to make enough money to do that, and that I was going to have to be financially dependent on him because I, if I couldn't pay off my loans, I couldn't pay for anything. So he ended up taking that a step further and claiming authority over my body because of that. Kyle also grew increasingly mean and challenging about my health conditions throughout the course of our relationship. As I've described earlier, I made a tremendous amount of progress in physical symptoms throughout medical school, but healing was still a rocky road. And I think, as I mentioned before, pretending my health problems didn't exist was easier than learning to be considerate of them for Kyle. So he began challenging me as to whether my health issues existed or were simply in my head. He claimed that nothing I was doing as a medical treatment was working. And then how he exerted authority over my body was he said, when we got married, he had the right to choose the doctors I would see. I was very against this at this point because I had been a patient of two of the best hospital systems in the United States and the world. I had a team of specialists at each location as well as all kinds of conventional and alternative specialists locally, and no one knew what to do with my case. As I mentioned before, the Mayo Clinic didn't know what to do with me either, and Kyle wanted me to go to your average primary care doctor and do exactly what they told me, and I knew that that wasn't going to work for me. So I told them if he wanted to pick those doctors that I wanted to at least select a list of doctors who I thought could help me and he could choose from them. I thought that was a more than a fair compromise. I was in the medical field, so I actually had a clue about what was going on in my body. He had never been invested in my health care and he had no better medical background and was coming in as a totally blind and naive stranger. He said no. He got total say. And so I said, fine. If I'm going to your doctors and they make a recommendation I'm not comfortable with, I'm not going to take it. It's my body. And he told me, no, you have to do exactly what they say. He even once said he might make me take something, which I don't know what his plans were for enforcing that. But his justification for all of this was that I would never make enough money to pay off my student loans and would therefore be fully financially dependent on him. He claimed that he would be paying for my doctors, which I had never asked him to do. And because of that, he said he was entitled to make unchallenged decisions about my health and ultimately about what it wouldn't be going into my body. This brings me to the type of emotional abuse that has been most difficult for me to get over. That is physical coercion. So technically, sexual oppression is considered an emotionally abusive behavior and it's categorized by excessive sexual demands and sexual put-downs, objectifying you, pressuring you to have sex when you don't want to, making you feel as though you don't meet your partner's sexual needs or desires, cheating on you, initiating sex primarily during sleep. And that's the list. So with this, we may also see reproduction, reproductive coercion, which can include refusing to wear a condom or use another method of birth control, refusing to let you use birth control, interfering with birth control efforts. So an example might be 
you know, swapping out your pills or poking a hole in condoms. But I want to broaden this category a little bit and talk about physical coercion in general, because as I mentioned earlier, I think our culture has expectations that women owe men certain types of physical connection relationships. And I've heard so many times women say things like, I just did this because it was easier than saying no, or he told me it was my fault that he cheated on me because I wasn't doing X, Y, or C physically. And they really want to break that mindset in women. So I hope that women can feel safe enough to enjoy healthy physical relationships. But that being said, I think it also needs to be said, you don't owe your partner anything physically. Physical relationship is a natural response to intimate connection, and it will flow naturally if the relationship is healthy. I could do a whole separate podcast on this, but for now, I'm going to dive into my story. From the time I met Kyle when I was 18 years old, he was taking photos of topless women. This should have been a red flag, but he had a reputation among older guys that I really admired as being a photographer. This was in the 2000s or, I don't know, 2020 teens, I guess, when the general public was kind of discovering cameras and people who knew how to use them were thought it was really cool. So I chalked it out to this just as being an occupational hazard. And I think that my self-esteem was so low, I felt a little bit flattered by the fact that he had taken pictures of all these topless models but at the same time still found me attractive and wanted to date me. Kyle definitely had a charisma about him. When I first heard about him, I was told he could get any girl he wanted, and a lot of my older guy friends looked up to him for that. So when he and I connected, I was determined to not be just another girl, so to speak. I played games with him to make myself more of a challenge because I wanted to be special, and Kyle made me feel out of this world special. And the idea that this guy who has access to all these attractive women wants me was too irresistible to say no to. Over the years, Kyle and I were on and off, as I talked about before, and every time we were on and off, he would sleep with a bunch of women. It got to the point where my family and friends started to wonder if he was actually using me, then breaking up with me to sleep with other women. I never actually found out his number. I asked my sister one time because somehow she knew and I kept asking her, is it this number or this number? And when it got to 100, she said, do you really want to know that? And I said, no. So to this day, I don't know, but I personally would believe there was an issue with sex there. But it didn't start so glaringly obvious. When we would get back together, I'd hear about one or two women and he presented in a way that he thought it was a mistake. He really loved me and we would try to move forward from there. But I should have known when we were planning our wedding and he said he wanted to get a new bed that that was a red flag. She had a really nice bed and I said, why in the world would you want to get a new bed? And he said, oh, you know. So I said to start fresh and he said, yes. By the time we were planning on getting married, I didn't know that he had an unhealthy relationship with sex, even if I didn't grasp the full dimension of it. And because of that, I wanted to have some strong physical boundaries around our relationship so that he could experience the satisfaction of emotional connection and physical connection as a product of that, because that's how you rewire a brain that has learned to get dopamine hits in an unrealistic way. So I knew that would take some time. It had nothing to do with lack of desire or attraction in me toward him. And most of my thoughts on this, I did communicate before we got back together, so I didn't blindside him. And he acted like he was in agreement with me. But what I didn't communicate before we got back together, I was willing to compromise on because he wasn't in agreement with all of it. So I didn't really try to handle things in a way that was true to myself, but considerate of him. 
Kyle quickly identified a certain type of physical connection he wanted. I wasn't sure how I felt about it and he got really pushy about it. He would say things like he needed this because he loved me so much and that was how he expressed love to me. Which is an interesting line because I think truly loving someone is being willing to put your needs aside to relate to them in ways that cause them to feel loved. And ironically, if he would have been willing to do this, I think he would have gotten what he wanted a lot faster anyway. When that didn't work, he started saying that physical touch was his love language and he needed this specific thing to feel loved. I know I've talked about this a little bit in the Opry Redinger interview, but I just thought that was absolutely ridiculous to not be able to receive love in other ways except your one love language and to not be able to enjoy other forms of physical connection that existed in our relationship except this one thing yet focused in on. This remained a spot of tension in our relationship until one day we had a big glow up about it and Kyle made a paper contract of things that must be agreed to if the relationship was to continue. This physical demand was for medicine. And he also added that I couldn't speak to the counselors we had seen, my friends, and various family members about a relationship anymore. There might have been more on it. Those are the two big ones I remember. And he told me that the contract had to be signed by 8 p.m. or we would be broken up. I panicked. This felt very unhealthy to me. And it wasn't so much that what he was asking physically I was intrinsically uncomfortable with. It was this aggressive pushing against my boundaries. I left the apartment and went to the parking garage and was sobbing. I was calling everyone I could think of to get an opinion on whether this was healthy enough or not. And of course, no one was answering. So I gave up. But later that day, the counselor I had seen that one time with Kyle before called me back. He agreed to do an emergency phone meeting with us and he did not do a good job. Later, he told me that he knew something was wrong when he was on the phone with us. But during the call, he basically said, well, this could be from my peer and that that I wasn't willing to do what Kyle wanted. And now looking back, I think, you know, it's normal to feel fear if someone is trying to pressure you into doing something physically that you aren't comfortable with. So we got off the call, I paid for the session, and then we did what Kyle had wanted all along. It wasn't romantic or the way that you would want a new chapter of physical relationship with someone you loved to start life. I remember feeling sick to my stomach the whole time, and when I look back, what I was experiencing was non-consensual physical coercion. But it happened, and I figured, you know, we're just moving forward from here. That night at 6 p.m., Tyler and I are walking out of the apartment for dinner, and he says, wait. He grabs the pen, grabs the contract, hands them to me, and says, we work it back before 8 p.m. And I, I gave him this blank stare and said, are you serious? He was, so I signed, but the rest of the evening, I felt very uneasy. I felt like it just wasn't healthy to be signing a contract like that, especially with physical demands. I thought me caving into the physical demands would be enough. So I sent a text to the counselor we had talked to, letting him know I was very uncomfortable with this and asking him if he was sure this was healthy. Later that night, Kyle somehow saw that I was texting the counselor. He got super angry, grabbed the contract, literally ripped it in half, and was yelling at me, it's not going to work, it's never worked, and it never will. I felt like I needed to grab my stuff and leave, but I knew that if I did that, we would never get back together, and I still had hope that things would work out between us. It was also 2 a.m., and I just didn't have the emotional energy to drive back home that night. I think looking back, I am actually glad that I stayed, because I think if I had left and the relationship had ended, 
I would have always regretted not seeing what happened after. But I don't want that to be an encouragement of any woman to stay in a situation like that. I more bring that up as an example that, you know, a lot of times people don't understand why women say past things like this in relationship. And I think the truth is you're not ready until you're ready and you have to have grace for that. And it has helped me with closure to figure things out in my own way. So that night, Kyle got into his bed and I slept on the floor. And well, I should say I laid on the floor. I did not sleep that night. I was just anxiety all night, trying to pray, figure things out. In the morning, I again, not a proud moment, basically grovel. So while he was still sleeping, I crawled into bed next to him. And when he woke up, he put his arms around me and I said, like, I'm so, it's so cringy to say now, but I said, will you keep me? And he said, maybe. And shortly after, proceeded to again initiate the physical issue that had started all this. And things were kind of smoothed over from that point out. But Kyle did keep trying to escalate things. And I had to keep telling him, stop trying this. I don't want to do that, etc. And he also got this idea in his head that I mentioned earlier that I wouldn't want to have sex with him when we got married. And he kind of just had, in general, this weird hang-up about marriage. He was also afraid that I wouldn't want to spend time with him after we got married. So he had said that when we got married, we needed to be having sex 12 times a week. I wasn't sure how to respond to that. I think I was kind of shocked. So I told him that I was thinking that, you know, I get sometimes you have a really great, exciting week. But realistically, I don't see that being practical for every week of the rest of our lives because we both have jobs and other interests. And if we're going to be having that much sex consistently, we're probably going to get pregnant and that will take up some time. And he was pretty serious about it, though. So I said, well, if you're serious about that, we might need to consider scheduling. And he said, no, it all needs to be spontaneous. His justification for this was he thought that women with histories of sexual abuse or physical boundaries basically couldn't perform in the context of marriage. Again, I did not feel that way at all, but he weaponized my history of sexual abuse against me to tell me that because of it, I wouldn't be comfortable with wanting to do X, Y, or Z in the future, so he would have to do something else now so he would feel comfortable marrying me. If I was ever not comfortable with something he wanted to do now, he would blame it on my history of sexual abuse. I once pressed the issue with him and I asked him, okay, let's say we get married and we do hit a point in our relationship where I'm struggling with sexual dynamics because of a history of being abused. How are you going to respond? And Kyle said, well, there would basically be no relationship then. So that kind of gives you an idea of what he thought relationship was. And again, I asked that question with the understanding that, you know, sometimes there's triggers from abuse that you don't foresee. And I've, you know, I think it's important to work through those. I'm not, you know, expecting him to have an abstinent marriage for the rest of his life. But I think for Kyle, I don't know. I think the main feature of relationship for him was physical. So this takes us to the part of the podcast where I'm going to cover other types of emotional abuse that were not a prominent picture of my relationship. Lying is characterized by deceit, leaving out important facts, exaggerating or diminishing the truth, or twisting small amounts of truth into a lie. Kind of like how Kyle would kind of twist things that I said into something different that it's not lying. It's just different emotionally abusive behavior. And I am not sure if there was lying going on in my relationship. I would like to say there wasn't, 
but the healthier I've gotten, I would say the more question marks I have. The first example of this would be when Kyle and I first started dating, we had a mutual friend who wanted Kyle to date one of her friends. By the time she pitched her friend to Kyle, he and I had pretty much decided to be exclusive. But she was still rooting for them to get together. Kyle and this girl did meet in a social context, and they went to the same college together. And right before he went back to college for the summer, he and I decided to exclusively date, or right before he went back to college after the summer. It happened in a really sweet and romantic way, and I felt pretty secure in our relationship. However, right after he got back to college, he went out drinking with a bunch of guys and got into a bar fight, and he tried to make it sound like it wasn't his fault, but that's not the story I was getting from the other guys. So I was just kind of annoyed about the situation. I know guys do stuff like that in college, but I was just never into those kinds of guys, and Kyle knew that. After that conversation, he tried to back out of dating me, saying that he thought he just thought we weren't a good match. And this was after like eight months of him pursuing me hardcore. I was very hurt by that, but I accepted it. Then I happened to see him making flirtatious comments on this girl's Facebook wall. This was back in the day when people still use Facebook. So this girl that our mutual friend had wanted him to date, he's talking to her on her Facebook wall and the comments are timestamped from when you know, he and I were talking about exclusively dating. He told me he wasn't talking to her then, but I can see the timestamp. So I had a lot of questions. And we ended up talking about it several months later. My sister and I had taken a trip to see some mutual friends at the college he went to, and he was going to take my sister's senior photos. We had decided to have a conversation after, and I told him how he had told me that he was going to marry me and acted completely obsessed with me for eight months. And then turned around and started dating another girl that he had been talking to when we first started dating. Somewhere in that conversation, he told me in a non-direct way, meaning he made up this hypothetical scenario and said, maybe this is the case. But what he was expressing in that scenario was that he still had feelings for me, but he wasn't dating me for, I don't know, it was some stupid reason that I can't remember. And after that conversation, Kyle was very persistent about wanting to be friends with me. I was not open to it because I thought that was questionable and I didn't think it was super appropriate for him while he was in a relationship. But he kept pushing and after time, I got a little bit more open to it because he kept saying his girlfriend was okay with it. So, and I missed him. So I texted his girlfriend and I asked her if she was okay with it and I let her know I wasn't trying to date him at all and I wouldn't want to do anything that would appear to compromise another woman's relationship in any way. And she sent me back a pretty condescending text about how I wasn't a threat and I didn't need to text her. So Kyle and I decided to be friends. And then he and that other girl were broken up a few months later. So there just always seemed to be a different dynamic going on than the story he was telling. And after he and this girl broke up, one might argue even while they were still together, he was pursuing me to date me. But it started as the guise of friends and then they just broke up. And then he kind of moved back over to pursuing me. He was also all over social media with his girlfriend. He secret. So when we first met, he would secretly post all about me on social media. And I mean, all over. Like I would Google my name and find things I didn't even know he had posted. But near the end of our relationship, when we were planning on getting married, he didn't really show much of me at all. And the same week we broke up, he posted a photo of a new girl he was on a date with, like, head and everything. So I do wonder why he kept me off social media and showed other girls off. 
but it is something I've heard in stories of other toxic relationships. I also wondered if there was more of a story as to why he never proposed to me. So every time he initiated dating me, he was full speed of marriage, which I think was a form of exerting control over me. When we looked at rings, dresses, house stuff, dates, we did all of that, but he never proposed. And first he said it was because he wanted to buy me a nice ring and to then have the money to. And please keep in mind, this was the same time period he was asking me to sign a prenup. Then I had suggested he propose on Easter. I thought it would be the perfect occasion because it would give us enough time to plan a rushed wedding for September, which is when we had wanted to get married. Both of our families were going to be in the same area near a beach that was really special to us. And we also had this spring kind of rebirth metaphor in our relationship. So I thought it would just be perfect. And he said he didn't want to because he wanted to give me the perfect romantic proposal. And that wouldn't be it. So he just never gave me one. Then he didn't feel comfortable proposing because he needed X, Y, or Z to be right about the relationship before proposing while pressuring me to feel ready to get engaged. He had a habit of buying expensive things after we broke up and after we broke up for the final time, but we're still trying to make things work. I showed up to his apartment and he was wearing a Rolex watch. And I said, is that my engagement ring? And he made a joke that said it was like a term we said to each other that basically meant yes. And I also feel that him pressuring me to do all this wedding planning without ever giving me a ring was a form of control. You know, he never actually wanted to get married but he wanted to force me to do all these behaviors with the excuse that he needed those to feel comfortable or because we were getting married and then with the girl who kicked him when we were dating to this day i don't know the truth about that situation when it happened he told her i love my girlfriend and he called me and told me what happened so it did seem like he was trying to be honest about it he continued to follow this girl on instagram as i mentioned before even though i asked him not to so I just kind of always wondered if there was more to that story. Deep down, I don't believe he like, you know, had sex with her and cheated on me in that way, but I don't know if he was keeping his options open. There are three other types of emotional abuse that I don't feel I experienced in my relationship with Kyle, but I will mention them here because the point of this episode is to help women notice things in their life that could be emotional abuse. These include demeaning and humiliating behaviors, that cause loss of dignity and respect of others, embarrassing you in public, or spreading lies or false information about you. I mean, maybe Kyle kind of wasn't completely accurate in the way he depicted me to his friends, so that might be an example, but I don't really count that as a super huge problem in our relationship. Also, threats. So threats would include threatening to cause pain, injury, damage, or some type of other aggressive action in retribution for something you do or for something you don't do. I can also include threatening to harm himself or your loved ones when upset with you. And then the third one is destruction, which would include breaking or ruining things that are important or valuable to you. If you have had experience with these, definitely mention them in review or send me a message on Instagram so I can share. To close this out, I also want to say that an episode like this can highlight all the bad things about relationship with Kyle, but there were some really good things, some really beautiful things, and some things I just honestly have never found again. Those things made it really hard to see the destructive behaviors as clearly as looking back now does, which is one of the reasons why I'm sharing an episode with compressed behaviors like this. It really crystallizes things that seem foggy when you're in an up and down relationship. 
This is also one of the reasons I feel so passionate about talking about things like this in my book and in this podcast series because I think it's possible to experience real love with someone really toxic. And that's something I try to portray in my resources, especially my book, because I think it makes the pain of these experiences that much more painful and confusing. I mentioned this idea in the book, but it can be really hard to understand how somebody so loving could be also so just unloving. And it can also be really hard to attribute negative motives to them when they're sometimes treating us like we can do no wrong. And when we really love them. I think that part of the hearing process is acknowledging the depth of love, but also recognizing the full truth of the unhealthiness of these behaviors. So I do want to acknowledge that it wasn't all bad. And that doesn't mean that it wasn't all good. I also do want to mention that some of the details like locations are similar to actual locations, but not exact. They provide an extra layer of protection on Kyle's identity. Kyle's obviously not his real name. Last but not least, I'll say that almost seven years later, I'm still putting things together. There are things that are still clicking for me. And something that I didn't talk a lot about in this episode was that there was a strong dynamic from narcissism as well in my relationship with Kyle. He had to take various psychiatric evaluations for different jobs. And he always scored high in the narcissism category. He actually told me that at the start of our relationship, and I was so naive, I just thought it was a funny joke. That would definitely be a red flag now, but I do want to share one thing I've recently learned about narcissism since a lot of women have been through narcissistic emotional abuse, which is its own flavor of emotional abuse. So I learned that some narcissists don't actually love you, but they are obsessed with you, and that obsession feels like love to them and to you. While I do think that Kyle loved me the best he knew how, I also think that a lot of what happened between us was just his narcissistic obsession with me. And I was talking to my mom and sisters about this and wondering why I was the special girlfriend. I was the one he always came back to, the one he always said he really loved. And one of my sisters pointed out that he never conquered me. So there were ways I held back from him in relationship because of my red flags that other girls didn't. And that kept him from feeling like he truly possessed me. Even when I met him, I played games with him, which I wouldn't do now. But it was I didn't I didn't want to be like just another girl to him. And so there was always this chase and pursuit that kept us experiencing highs with all this emotional abuse, I guess I'll say. Um, So it's kind of wild to recognize that because I still genuinely loved him, even now knowing that a lot of the person that I knew was probably a construct of some narcissistic processes happening within. That doesn't change that I did. I genuinely loved him, even if what I was experiencing was just some type of mental health obsession with me or something. So I'm thankful um, that I've been able to learn some things that have made me aware of and hungry for healthier love. And I'm really grateful to be able to share what I've learned with you so you can have healthier love too. And I hope you have enjoyed this little recap of emotional abuse and different flavors of it in my relationship. Hopefully it can help you spot some flags or make sense of things that you've been through in the past.
Thanks for listening to this season of Women Who Roar. It was a learning experience and a lot of fun. I'm so genuinely grateful for all the connections and conversations that have ultimately made us stronger together and that you've chosen to spend about an hour of your week with me. I've got a lot of great guests lining up for season two, so make sure to subscribe to the podcast, share it with a friend, and don't forget to grab a copy of my book, Losing You, Finding Me, on Amazon or my website, chelseazarkon.com, for a deep dive into healing from toxic relationships and relationship loss. Until then, let's keep sharing our stories to help protect other women just like ourselves.